MSW Media. Prevail. This is the new program for politics. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organizado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Ta brotpo za demokratiju. I ahora, a tebe. Et maintenant, con ustedes, su anfitrión, Gregorio. Gregorio. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is here. Please join me in thanking our new sponsor, America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50Prevail for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Yeah, I use HelloFresh myself, and it's fantastic. So I encourage everybody to check that out. Also, take advantage of that fantastic offer. Very, very excited to have them sponsoring the show. And this is a good show. Um, Ruth, as you know, um, one of the foremost experts on the subject of fascism. You know, her book, Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, absolutely must read to understand what's going on in the country right now and in the world right now. She also produces a substack which is called Lucid, L-U-C-I-D. It's one of my favorite ones out there. I know there's a lot of substacks, but hers is absolutely like must read, you know, really well put together. And I'm always fascinated to see uh, what she thinks about the stuff that's happening because, you know, there's a lot of parallels about the rise of fascism and, um, you know, it's scary stuff, obviously, but it's it's necessary. We have to be vigilant and understand what it is that uh, that we're seeing so that we can prevent it and combat it um, because we still have to do that. Um, you know, one of the points she makes in the podcast, in the interview, is that, you know, fascism, I mean, it takes a long time. It takes a long time to develop and it lasts a long time. You know, Mussolini was there for a long time. Putin's been there for a long time. It took a long time for Hitler to get into power. You know, these guys, they don't go away until they're in the ground. And that's just, you know, the, the reality of it. Um, you know, if you look at Netanyahu in Israel, I mean, he was out, you know, and he's under indictment and all this stuff in there. He's back. It's, it's crazy. So, you know, I'm very, very optimistic that Trump will not return to the White House. But we're we're not out of the woods yet. We, we really have to defeat this guy at the ballot box and, uh, you know, send him packing for good. That's absolutely essential. So um, anyway, we talk about a lot of things. We cover stuff both domestically and internationally because there's some things happening in Europe, especially in Italy. Um, in Spain that I wanted to talk to her about. We talk about, you know, Florida and DeSantis, obviously, and Texas, which is also a big problem fascist state here in the U.S. And uh, I take her temperature about, you know, how optimistic she is at the end. So um, stick around for that. Uh, great conversation with Ruth. Okay, so I'm recording this on Thursday morning. It is August 31st, Thursday morning. We are now, I guess, in day seven as you're listening to this, of the post-mugshot era. And uh, I don't know, does it feel different? I, I said this on the um, on the 5.8 last week because I recorded my podcast intro after it happened, but um, I'll repeat the story just for people that, that didn't watch the show. Um, 
I never ever watch. I don't watch really like TV TV that's like you know broadcasting whatever. I, I stream stuff, but that's usually all I ever watch. But um, I decided that uh, you know what I'm going to watch MSNBC for the coverage of this mugshot thing while he while Trump was surrendering to authorities in uh, in Atlanta there. And then put out a thing saying never surrender while having just surrendered. I don't I, I don't even know that's it, it's so Orwellian that it's almost jaw dropping that people can believe this at this point. It, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't get it. It's 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 shock shock that there's gambling going on here. Here's your winning sir level of what? Um, but I guess people are believing it because he's still raising money. People are still giving this idiot money. It's crazy to me, but whatever. Anyway, I was watching MSNBC which I thought generally was pretty good. You know, all the, the they had a, a panel there. I don't know what they usually do, but, uh, you know, uh, Ari Melber was was great and, and Joy Reid was great and uh, Rachel was great. It was it was just really well done. They everybody made, you know, interesting, different points. So, um, you know, I learned a lot watching it and thought a lot about how to process the information. So <laughs> there came a point where Rachel came on and said, OK, uh, if you're doing the dishes, you might want to stop and come to the TV now. And I knew based on timing that it was going to be the unveiling of the headshot of the presidential portrait, as it were, as uh, Lawrence O'Donnell later said, this is the presidential portrait. So I summoned my kids and my wife and I said, you got to come, you got to come, you got to watch this now. So they all gathered in front of the television to look at the mugshot. And let me tell you, my family exploded in laughter, just exploded in laughter because he's trying so hard to look so hard, right? He's trying so hard. This practiced sneer and uh, the hair is just so, and it's just ridiculous. It's just a joke. I mean, people think this guy is some tough guy. It's a fucking joke, it really is. Um, <laughs> so it was delightful to hear my children laugh at this idiot. And, you know, my kids are, are uh, 17 and 18. so. You know they're going to be voting in the next election, and I think you know there's a lot there's a lot of Gen Z voters. Gen Z, you know, they're very progressive. They're hip to all this stuff. They're afraid about the climate. They don't like the school shootings, which are the Republicans' fault. Um, you know, all these mass slaughters. I mean, we had more this week, right? Uh, that's all uh, Republican. That's all Mitch McConnell's fault in the Senate for not allowing votes on gun control. And, you know, the kids are smart. They know. They know who to blame for this stuff. So the Republicans are going to get destroyed at the ballot box. I, I think they don't really see it coming. I think Gen Z is going to really turn the tide in a huge way. Um, you know, and I think the polls are going to be off and we'll, everything's going to favor the Democrats by more than what people probably realize because they're not going to account for how much contempt the young people have for uh, for Trump and for everything he stands for and for what the Republicans are doing to the country, you know? So um, I'm excited about that. Anyway, it was delicious to hear my family laugh. I enjoyed it. It, it was great. Um, the, the whole thing with the headshot being appropriated by both sides is interesting. There's an episode of The Simpsons from long ago where Bart Simpson is running for class president against Martin Prince, who's kind of like the dork in the class, right? And Bart Simpson, of course, is the, you know, the rebellious cut up. And they're both running for class president. And one of the scenes, Martin Prince is hanging up a poster. And the poster says, a vote for Bart is a vote for anarchy. And then it pans down the hallway and Bart is hanging up 
the exact same sign. <laughs> and that's what the headshot is. It's something that both sides are going to use. And therefore, everyone's going to see this thing. Like it's going to be, I mean, seared at everybody's eyeballs. I know we've seen this guy so many times in so many different guises over the years because he's been a public figure. He's been on TV forever. You know, he's been in the tabloids. Uh, but this is it. This is, as O'Donnell said, this is his presidential portrait. This is how he's going to be remembered. And I don't know. You know, I know that they're trying to portray it like him going to prison is <laughs> some kind of noble thing, like he's Navalny or something. But it's not. He's just a criminal. You know, criminals go to jail. That's what happens. Um, you know, he's not Navalny. He's not Martin Luther King. He's he's Spiro Agnew, man. You know, he's like that level of corrupt. So I guess Spiro didn't go to jail. But you know what I mean? Um, he's just a crook. That's all. He's a fucking crook. He's always been a crook. He's been a criminal his whole life. He grew up in a criminal family. And we put him in the White House and then wondered why <laughs> everything went to shit, you know? Well, because he's a criminal. That's why. And criminals are really good at stealing and, you know, looting and grifting. And they're not good at anything else. So that's it. That's the reality. Anyway, welcome to the post-mugshot era here in the United States, you know, we have to take the victories when we can take them. So uh, I'm fine with with enjoying that uh, for as long as I can, because Lord knows there's not much to, to enjoy on the news front, right? So anyway, without further ado, my God, I thought to myself, I'd have nothing to say this morning. I don't even know what I'm going to talk about. And I'm already like nine minutes into this thing. My apologies. So without further ado, we will be right back with Ruth, Ben, Yacht. Jack Smith and Fonny after me Should I stay or should I flee? 200 G's they set my bail No way I'll ever go to jail I'm Daddy Vladdy's nominee Should I stay or should I flee? Should I stay or should I flee now? Should I run or watch TV now? If I flee, it's hello Moscow. But if I stay, I'm in the hooskow. Please put an MBS or she. I can't stay, I gotta flee. Ruth ben Giat, welcome back to Prevail. Thank you. Delighted to be speaking with you. I'm very excited to talk to you. I have like a big page of of questions about fascism because that's what you like to talk about, as we know. Um, fascism abroad and fascism here in the states. Um, before we uh, get into that, your book came out. Your book is called uh, "Strong Men: Mussolini to the Present," and it came out. I think it, is it in 2020? Is that when it? Do I have the first edition? Okay, so it's three years now. I think I'm doing the math right. I I I find that I. I fact check myself with all this very complicated, uh, complex stuff. And then when I write something, I mess up like I can't subtract three minus one. I'll get that wrong. So anyway, okay. So it's been out for three years. Um, what's changed for you in the last three years in terms of like the climate that we're seeing now and also your own kind of expectations of things? Because um, 
you know, when you wrote the book, you were thinking about Trump and certainly, but I think that now, I don't know. I just feel like this has gone on a lot longer than I expected. And I'm wondering if it, if you feel the same way, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, so the book came out right after the election. And so I turned it in, obviously in the, in the summer, I had time to include uh, black lives matter, um, protests. Uh, but I predicted that uh, whatever happened in the election, he wouldn't leave quietly because it, it was the first book to set up Trump in the tradition of 100 years of authoritarian rule. And one of the points was to look at, you know, what's changed and what stays the same. So like personality cults, the way those operate, it's astonishing. It's the same. The media, of course, are different. But today, you know, you don't, usually ban elections unless it's a one party communist state you you come to power through elections and then you try and fix the system to stay there so it's different so then there was a, a paperback edition and i had an epilogue about january 6th and so i was able to to follow through the narrative i've set up of trump as an authoritarian and also a third of the book was about coups mm-hmm. very you know i couldn't have predicted but all of the knowledge I had gained about conditions for a coup, who, you know, how they work. So, for example, for every person who's there, you know, the thugs on scene, you know, like baking people's heads, there are two people in uniforms or suits, like a Mark Meadows in our case, who are making things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all the enablers. So, so I had all that knowledge and I was able to apply it. And since then... I, I feel like many of the dynamics I set up in the book are coming to life where, you know, everyone says, well, how come his personality cult just keeps going? Right. Um, but I had in the book the example of Silvio Berlusconi, you know, who was prosecuted two years after he left office. And at the very beginning, uh, he was disgraced. He had a million things he was you know, prosecuted for, sex with an underage minor, corruption. The elections held two years after he was convicted. Um, his party almost won again. <laughs> yeah. And then he was banned from politics for five years. So that's what did it. So there's a lot of lessons in the book that help us to understand what's going on in the States today. Also, what happened in Brazil with Bolsonaro and so forth. Right. Right. And you personally, like, how do you feel? Do you I guess you predicted it. So is it one of these things like, well, I knew this was going to happen. Or do you feel like I did predict this and yet I still can't believe this in a sense? Or no, you're just you just knew it was going to happen. I mean, we the, the reason people are caught unawares every time is that um, not only there's the human. This is an, an unchanging thing, the human impulse to be in denial, to think that it can't happen here. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that was most interesting about my research is um, everybody thought it couldn't happen there. The, the Germans, even though it just happened in Italy, the Germans thought, well, we're in fact, Germany was one of the most technologically, intellectually sophisticated nations in the world. Yeah. Uh, science, math, engineering, graphic design, they were just super, you know, it wasn't just that Weimar was progressive, had the world's highest concentration of gay clubs. It was all these other things. So they thought we we can't, it can't happen here that this ranting idiot is going to, you know, take over. And then we know that, you know, German Jews were still in denial. The same thing happened in Italy. So we, it's like it's our turn in America 
for many of these things to happen. And before you said, oh, it, I feel like it's been going on a long time. Well, these things do take a long time sometimes. In Germany, yeah. Hitler tried for a whole decade, right? Um, Orban in Hungary has been in power for over a decade. It, it takes, and there sometimes the, the long, the longness, that's not really a word, is they, they get in, they go out, they get back in. That's Netanyahu. Sometimes in Hitler, it took him a long time to get there, and then he did everything quick. And sometimes the newer thing is you get there, and over time you become more repressive. Um, and that's happened in Turkey and in Hungary and, of course, in Russia. So, yeah, Russia, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's 20 years. Putin has now been in power as, as long as Mussolini, uh, which is interesting to think about. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been a long time. Um, I think I asked you this before, but I'm going to ask again because time has passed. So which which of the authoritarians that you've written about or or that we've seen does Trump most remind you of? Is it Mussolini or is it somebody else? I mean, honestly, he takes from he takes from many people. And there's a reason, uh, you know, part of what he's doing is reeducating the American population to see dictators in a positive way. We all, you know, can say, oh, Trump's a clown. He just likes to bluster. He likes to compare himself to Xi Jinping. That's not all that's going on. It's not just his ego. He's relentlessly using the primary principle of propaganda, which is repetition, to recommend these this kind of leader and not others. So when he yeah. keeps saying, and he's doing this now, it's the frequency has increased. It makes sense too. It's about once a week now. He says, you know, he calls them like Putin and uh, you know Kim Jong Un and she top of the line people at the top of their game. Now, what is the game? The game is corruption, violence. You know, North Korea is like a cybercrime state. That's like its main product now. Right. These are criminal operations and Trump's a criminal. So he is recommending these people over and over to Americans. So he takes from he takes from everyone. He reminds me in his physical, um, you know, I wrote a book on fascist uh, film propaganda and, and the male body and stuff. So he reminds me sometimes, of course, of Mussolini, where he jets his chin out. But he also takes a page from Hitler. Like I wrote a piece in my Lucid newsletter uh, called, you know, Triumph of the Will, Waco version. And he came down this rally where he announced his candidacy. He held it very specifically in Waco, Texas, pilgrimage site for extremists. And he came down from the sky in an airplane and, and he was channeling in the theatrics of it, Triumph of the Will. So he's taking from everyone, communist, fascist, it doesn't matter. It's as long as they have total power and he can admire them, that's what he wants to to, to emulate. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned Lucid. That's the name of your Substack, your newsletter, which is excellent. And uh, I subscribe to it and I encourage everybody listening to do so as well. So, you know, when you write books, um, it's hard because the book can only come out, you know, every year and a half or two years, whatever it is. So, um, you know, keeping up to date with with the Substack, I think, is super valuable, especially in this space as things move very, very quickly. And, you know, players emerge when they see people like Trump and Putin and Orban, you know, winning, 
and being successful at what they're doing, I think it it creates more copycats and dictators are more cop are copycat inclined to begin with. They're not, you know, this isn't like a bunch of original thinkers here uh, so much. That's what no, they do. That's that's DeSantis. And, and, and in fact, it's I, I also write I've written about DeSantis for CNN and MSNBC. I'm a columnist at MSNBC, but uh, Lucid is where in 2021 <laughs> I started tracking DeSantis specifically as a mini Trump. Yeah. Um, because the 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 big picture thing is that when when these guys come on the scene in a country, they shake everything up. They allow other people to see the potential uh, of this new model of being a man, of being a male leader specifically. So DeSantis is somebody who, as you know, he you know he was a Trump diehard. Mm-hmm. That's how he advertised himself when he ran for governor two thousand eighteen, and he even used his own infant as a prop in a campaign ad. I have that emblazoned in my brain where he had like a crib blanket and he also showed he has two kids or now he has three reading a book or, you know, talking to his, his toddler about building the wall and like instructing his child in Trump, a dogma in Trump propaganda. So that's very heavy. And so he has styled himself, uh, you know, he's trying to be uh, to out Trump Trump, but he doesn't have the charisma of Trump. And there are many no. other reasons why he's failing. Yeah, no, he doesn't. I was going to I was going to do him second, but let's stay with DeSantis here. So um, as we're recording this, it is the end of July. It's July 29th. And I feel like his uh, campaign is foundering. He um, he actually had to fire somebody for using Nazi sim- symbolism in, in the ads or something like that, which, you yeah. know, used to be like kind of like something they were looking for when they were hiring people. I think in the GOP these days, they like to do their dog whistles uh, for Nazi stuff. So um, sh- I feel like his campaign is on the way out. But with Trump, I think Trump is going to run no matter what, you know, even if he's in prison, if he's alive, he's going to run, whether he's in <laughs> exile, whether he's in jail, he needs to keep fundraising. So he's yeah. either going to be the GOP nominee or he's going to run third party, I think. Um and, you know, do you think if Trump doesn't get the nomination, is DeSantis still the presumptive front runner or will somebody else emerge? I, I don't know. It feels like, you know, the, it's it like Twitter. It's trending down with him. But what, what are your oh, thoughts? Totally, totally. Well, he will get the nomination for several reasons. Uh, first, he is a cult leader. This is really yeah. important. Uh, he's not he's he's he as a president. He was already a cult leader. Um, and he uh, is different qualitatively than any other president before, including all the Republicans that came before. Yeah. And so the dynamics are different. And this is why the GOP, he's made them complicit and they could break away. They could they could have January 7th was uh, I've tweeted this before the off ramp uh, uh, on the Trump highway to hell was January. It opened January 7th and they didn't take it. Uh, Mike Pence could have who I, of course, don't don't care for. Uh, He could have, he had a moment of moral clarity, He could have led them. And they didn't want to do that. In fact, they doubled down. So they're a cult follower party as as much as the grassroots people. So that's one reason he has total control of the party. Um, All the other people uh, don't have uh, what it takes. They're hardly polling at all. And DeSantis is just um, people like, for example, Rupert Murdoch. These are the elites. Um, there are financial elites, media elites that always back these people. 
they want to win. They they don't want Biden back. And they will do anything, even back Trump, if they think he's going to win. And so they could feel that DeSantis is better privately because he doesn't have the baggage. He's just as extreme. Um, Look, he's done and he's accomplished a huge amount in Florida in in a horrible way. Yeah. Um, And that's he's doing that on purpose. He's saying, look at all I've done. I'm going to scale this up. Uh, And he doesn't have any of the criminal baggage except uh, his. uh, And this is a big except, you know, the Guantanamo, which is not really coming out on a national level yet uh, to make a difference to people. But nobody has the criminal baggage of Trump. He's an international criminal. So, but Murdoch, I'm just using him as an example, just, you know, they're not going to care. They never cared about that. And they want, they want a Republican in the White House. That's all they care about. And so um, DeSantis could even be a little more likable, but he'd have to be a real competitor enough to make these elites think they can win. Yeah, I don't think, you know, he's got a lot of things that on paper you need, but if the GOP is now a, a party of personality cults, they don't have any other people. There's like no that. one else. There's and just... there can't, there can't be anyone else. No one, right. the thing, the thing with the cult, and this was true in Berlusconi's Italy, um, nobody else could emerge. And it's, it's true with all, even when they're real regimes, uh, if you're too competent or too popular, you get demoted or worse, actually. Mobutu used to, you know, send you to jail. Um, if you if yeah. you were like too charismatic, so nobody else can emerge um, because of this, and that's another sign that we're under a cult. We're in a cult environment. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, the only other, the only hope I thought for DeSantis is his wife, because I did a, I you know we do these fake these parody songs sometimes. And I made one um, to Evita, to, to Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, about Casey DeSantis. And I think she really is kind of this Eva Perone type where yes. she would gladly jump in and play that part. But I and she has the TV skills. She was on TV. She was all this stuff. But she has I, everything. I don't think that, uh, you know, and the money kept rolling in from every. It's just it's so perfect. But I don't think I don't think her husband is even Juan Perone level charismatic enough to to pull it off. I don't know. So. No, and and there have been, and I think he's uncomfortable with her skill. Um, there have been, uh, you know, moments where uh, she's spoken for too long in public events, and he's standing there. He's always awkward and wooden, but he, I don't think he he likes it because he knows that she could outshine him. Yeah, um, she she could be the more successful politician, and uh, that's like wounding to his already fragile ego. Yeah. Okay. Keep doing what you're doing then, Casey. Uh, <laughs> wound him more, please. Um, okay. So I wrote, um, I, I'm, we're, we're pivoting now from Florida to Texas, which you've written about this on Lucid as well. I wrote a piece about Paxson and I quoted from Strongman here um, about corruption. So here, here's in your book, this is page 143 of the hardcover edition. Um, often defined as the abuse of public power for private gain, Corruption involves practices that encompass bribery, conflict of interest, plunder of state resources, the use of tax and licensing regulations to extort or force bankruptcy, illegal raids on businesses, and profiting from privatization or nationalization. I made a list of those. Ken Paxton did like all of them. Like he just hit the, you know, he hit the 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 uh, the bingo card and then and then some. 
What's going on in Texas with these three people? Because it seems like, first of all, they're just brazenly corrupt and awful. But it also seems like now they're kind of there's a mini civil war going on where they're going to try to take this guy out. Did he just go too far? Like, what's your take on what's happening there with with Ken Paxton uh, in Texas? Yeah, I haven't followed this as closely as um, you have, but I think that what happens when a party becomes authoritarian, and I want to preface this, the GOP in Texas is one of the most extreme um, state GOPs. And I I think about this, what I'm about to say, I think about this every day, uh, that in summer of 2022, they passed a resolution that says that Biden is not a legitimate president. So they don't recognize (laughs) the authority of the president. This is like subversive to the max. They call him an illegitimate president and they call him an acting president. Now, somebody who studies coups, this freaks me out, because acting is like, well, he's not going to be there very long. And and so they've been responsible for uh, these very dangerous discourses. You saw that Charlie Kirk just called for Biden to be, you know, put to death. Right. I saw and that so, this morning. Yeah. So, yeah. So I tweeted uh, this. These things are interrelated. So the Texas GOP, because if he's just acting, it, it could be like Allende in Chile. Oh, he's here, but like he's not going to be staying around very long. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so Texas uh, is a good place like Florida to study these authoritarian dynamics. And one of them is you've got to be corrupt, but you if you go too far, you become uh, you've got too much baggage and you risk exposing the corruption of everybody else. So there's a game. These people, mm-hmm. ha- their rules rather of, of the game. And if you if Paxton is too out there in too many ways, see, only only the leader, Trump, can be out there in so many ways. And maybe if you think about like. Again, this is a very in regimes like Nazism, where you had these fiefdoms and, and Hitler tolerated. Hitler was a little different than other dictators. He uh, liked to he was super lazy and he liked to delegate. So he didn't mind having very competent people with their own fiefdoms. Um, and each of those was like a world class criminal. But that was because it's Nazism. Fine. It was a, a real regime. If Normally, in this case, it's a democracy and they're all vulnerable to the press exposing them, the opposition party, like which is Democrats. So they're not safe. And so Paxton is putting them all. The the mentality is that Paxton is putting them all in jeopardy, I think. That's why he he's he's too um, toxic. I mean, it's good to see, frankly, the guy's been under federal indictment for seven years or something like that. Like it's been a while now. Yeah, there's all this weird shenanigans about why they haven't tried the case because they keep moving venues and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's just really crazy. And meanwhile, the you know, I don't get it, really. I mean, I do. I had uh, Jen Marchia was on um, a couple of weeks ago um, and said that in Texas, people just don't vote. And that's really what it is. But um, I sort of I, I, I proposed kind of as a joke that um, what we should do rather than let some of Texas secede, we should invalidate the Tyler Treaty and say that Texas never was part of the union and goodbye. 
because it would solve almost all of our problems overnight because we have two fewer, you know, senators and they're bad, horrible ones, a lot less horrible people in the House. Um, no more border problem there that be te Texas becomes a buffer zone and uh, and stuff like that. And this is we're never obviously going to do this, but I. Well, but but they're saying they don't recognize. And this is DeSantis says this very this is. This is very dangerous. The one of the most dangerous things going on is that people with real power, like governors and senators, are all converging, saying they don't recognize the authority of the federal government. That's yeah. DeSantis has a ton of stuff. The freedom, Florida is the freedom state. We don't have to mask here. And then now he's having his own little paramilitary. He's got his own election police. All of these things are done in a spirit of of subversion. And that's how they hook up with the anti-government militias. We've tolerated our country looking at America with like foreign eyes. I'm I'm American, but you know, because of what I study. In no other place on earth except like places that are in perennial sectarian violence or civil war tolerates so many of these these people who are ex, ex, anti-government extremists. Like think about no other nation in the world has constitutional sheriffs. What the hell is that? You know, Malcolm Nance calls them fake ass sheriffs. Like what kind of sheriff are you if you don't recognize like the law and you yeah. want to make your own version of the law? That's not acceptable in a democracy. So, you know, the Trump era and all that's happened after um it's still the Trump era for the true believers, um, has exposed to the wider public all these things that are very unusual <laughs> and and not good. And and what Trump does, like all these guys do, these strongmen, they activate all these people and they make them talk to each other under the tent of the Trump cult. They bring them together. And that's when it becomes, he always said it was a movement. And that's when you get a January 6th and God knows what else, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's scary. I mean, it really is. Um, it just occurs to me, Tyler, who I brought up as John Tyler, he was the first vice president to assume the presidency and they tried to call him acting president. And he was like, no, you will not call me that. I'm the president. It was like he forced everybody to, that's kind of his big, you know, gift to history was eliminating that word acting from the, uh, as a modifier well, for what he Yeah, was. well, that's why it caught my eye. It's just, yeah. a you have to pay, pay very close attention to language. Uh, and because when they initiate and try out these trial, it's called the trial balloon. Uh, Jen, Jen talks about this too. You get an extreme idea out there. Like Charlie Kirk with like, oh, I think we could just like put Biden to death. And then it's out there and Trump does this all the time. Um, yeah. And and it gets to become and then it's repeated by the right wing media machine and it becomes somehow normal. This is normalization. Um, but the acting thing is very dangerous. Yeah, no, it's scary. So um, I had Bryn Tannehill on the show. Um, I don't know, it's a couple great. months ago. She has yeah. a great book, American Fascism. And she seems to think that we're headed in one of two directions, either the Yugoslavia model or the Hungary model, which Hungary being, um, you know, an illiberal democracy where elections happen, but don't really matter because the party that in this case would be the fascist GOP would just kind of stay in power um, or the Yugoslavia model where, 
you know, New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts are like, yeah, we're out. We're done. Fuck you. We're stop. We're not giving money to to the states that are going to, you know, put women to death. Now we're not doing fugitive slave act stuff with, you know, pregnant teenagers. We're not doing that. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that that's accurate? Do you think we're headed for one of those two? Is there hope for a, a third way? What What are your thoughts? I think that if we, if we did have any kind of uh, fragmentation, that would be, um, that's what the Kremlin wants. Yeah. Um, and there, that's why, um, Putin has funded uh, California and Texas secessionism. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what his dream is to have the U.S. implode from within like uh, the USSR did, which he's never gotten over. Yeah. Um, and his dreams of wholeness, where he's going to have Ukraine and the revived Russian Empire, I'll come back to that like trauma of his. Not that I care about his trauma, but it affects <laughs> us all. It affects us all. And so... Um, that's part of a, a playbook to how do you wreck a democracy? You make uh, its people turn on each other. You augment any tensions, any inter-ethnic, inter-regional, any tensions you can find um, through hate politics. And then you you pry on secessionism. Even in, in Canada, uh, the convoy movement um, which was anti-vax, but way more than that. One of the main organizers of the convoy movement, which is anti, was designed to disrupt the economy and the supply chain with the trucks that, yeah. that paralyzed, uh, circulation of goods. And there was a little bit of it here too. That may come back, by the way, in 2024. But Tamara Lick, one of the main organizers is a secessionist for Western Canada. So these are things that are going on, uh, around the world. And that option, um, I know Bryn's not certainly saying it, and that's she doesn't want that to happen. She's not. No, no, she's just looking at she's it. She's diet. Yeah, yeah, she's assessing yeah. the paths we could take. I don't really think that's going to happen. Um, I do think that if Trump comes back, uh, it will be more, much more rapid than the Orban model, where again, as I said, you're in office and things happen gradually. Um, if Trump comes back precisely because he was booted out and he's vengeful, um, it'll be more like with Netanyahu, but who's got booted out is under indictment for three things right now. Yeah. And what does he do? He gets back. He immediately tries to take over the judiciary. And so there are massive protests. But Trump, when he says, I'll do everything in six months, he means it. Uh, whether he'll succeed, I don't know. But I, I would think that's more. I don't see a kind of full civil war. Um, only one side has guns, for one thing. Uh, there, there, there are structural reasons that I'm not sure we would become like a Lebanon or a or a Yugoslavia. Um, I don't see that. Although I think Brina's is right to call our attention to that as a as a as something that's happened elsewhere, yeah. and some people and some people want. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, this is a good time to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. So last week I came home from work and I'm thinking, what am I gonna make for dinner? You know, I'm on cooking detail this week. I basically just cook the same five things over and over again. I make them really well, but it's the same five things. Everyone in my house is sick of them. And I open the door and what's waiting for me in the vestibule, but a package from HelloFresh. 
And this is like the greatest thing because I don't know if you're familiar with HelloFresh, but it has everything you need like right there. So all you have to do is open up the box and like start cooking. It's wonderful. Um, you know, I mean, when it comes to options for dinner, honestly, more is more. The HelloFresh menu includes 40 recipes and over 100 add-on items to choose from every week. You should totally try it. If you go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50Prevail, get 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Kickstart a fresh fall routine with HelloFresh. HelloFresh handles all the meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook up a tasty meal right at home. They do the hard part and you get to take all the credit. Um, in my case, I got these these tacos, which they, the meat is so good that they have. And I put them with peppers and everything. And uh, they gave me cabbage. And I was going to make this cabbage. And I thought, I don't know if I like cabbage. I'm going to try this. But I, I followed the recipe exactly. And these, these tacos were so good that I ate like five of them. Like I gorged myself on these delicious HelloFresh tacos. Um, and now I learned how to cook them. I learned that, you know, cabbage is good. Who knew, right? Um, you know, if you ever wish that you can spend less time planning, shopping, cooking for the family, and more time with them, from easy time-saving breakfasts and family dinners to kid-approved lunches and snacks, HelloFresh has what it takes to keep everyone, including you, happy and satisfied. When you get HelloFresh, you know you're getting top-notch products since it travels from the farm to your door in less than seven days. And I can attest to this, the meat is like really good. Um, you know, because sometimes you go to the, the, the store in your town and you buy the chopped meat and it's a little bit sus, as the kids say. Uh, not here. This is like really good stuff, high quality stuff. And, uh, you know, you don't have to go to the sometimes I go to the supermarket and I buy things and then they wind up going bad because I don't know what, who's going to eat what. So this also eliminates that problem. Um, it's just a wonderful thing. And I, I highly recommend it. I'm so delighted that they're sponsoring the show. Um, I couldn't ask for a better sponsor. So uh, I, I encourage you to try it. It's really great. Um, go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Prevail and use code 50Prevail for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. HelloFresh. Delicious. It's really good. Try it. Trust me. Okay, we're back with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Okay, we talked about the U.S. Now we want to look overseas a little bit and talk about uh, stuff that's happening uh, in other parts of the world. You mentioned Canada. I didn't even have this on my list, but there there is this whole Alberta separatist movement, which is ridiculous because it's a it would be a landlocked place and all they have there is oil. Very strange. Uh, but what do you see happening in Canada? Because there, there seems to be this movement, I think, that's being initiated or at least helped along by right wing forces here in the States. Um, through the churches in Canada and through the that that movement to um, you know screw things up royally and get them to uh, fall into into more right wing uh, way of thinking with this uh, polar guy who is um, sort of terrifying. What, what's your take on Canada right now? Yeah, I I can't speak to specifically to what's going on there, uh, but yes, that that guy is terrifying. He's checking all the boxes of the demagogue. Um, and the, there are these disparate things going on, such as the convoy movement, which got everybody's attention up to Canada. And, and I just want to say that a little more about that. Um, one of the major examples we have in history of wrecking a democracy through economic warfare is Chile. And it's, it's a case study in my book 
where among and now this was helped hugely by the US. It was a yeah. US backed, but they took it took them three years to get the climate to have the coup. And one of the things they did and uh were truck strikes, where trucks wouldn't come into the center and just stay there, uh disrupting circulation, or they wouldn't deliver food at all. So the supply chain, and they wanted to create its economic warfare. And Nixon famously said to Kissinger and others, make the economy scream. So when this convoy thing started in Canada, I thought, ah, oh, that's interesting. It, it, they lost, you know, on both sides of the border, billions of dollars. And then there was a copycat movement, which didn't much take off here because the authorities were a little more prepared, um, but it was total bedlam. And there were people uh, in the movement, I mentioned Tamara Lick, who is a secessionist, but they wanted to destabilize the Canadian government to get rid of Trudeau. Yeah. So the, the ultimate aim is to weaken the government to show all of the things going on now, everything the GOP is doing and these people in Canada is to show that democracy doesn't work, that democracy is chaos, disruption, crime, um, like, you know, the crime that, that conservatives or extremists exploit. Um, right. Often there isn't really much crime, but uh, they say there is. So Canada is um, vulnerable to all of these dynamics. And it was very interesting to me that Marjorie Taylor Greene, while the convoy thing was at its peak, was tweeting in support of it. Yeah. And so here, that's another one of these uh, these moments, just like the Texas GOP, we have a sitting lawmaker uh, tweeting in support of a movement that wants to get rid of the sitting prime minister. Um, that's that's that that started me uh, thinking about all of the connections, not just to Russia, but there's the GOP is part of this. Uh, these circuits, these far right circuits that go to Hungary now to you know Italy with uh, Maloney. There's a whole thing, and they share methods and talking points, um, and they have common goals. So destabilizing democracy, we could see more of such things in Canada um, coming our way. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Um, now you mentioned the European countries, and you write in the book. Your book starts, I think, it's right in the first paragraph or two about the the little bromance between Putin and Berlusconi. You know, they, this is the bed that they sent, and how you know these dictators just love each other and they fawn all over each other. And I think that that's you know we see that with you know Marie Le Pen in France was was tight with Putin too, and the and and uh, you know the right wing forces in Britain, um, and on and on it goes. So. Maloney took over in Italy, and you wrote about this on Lucid, which again is your Substack, which is great, and people should go subscribe to that. Um, from where I sit, you know, the most important geopolitical thing happening right now is the war in Ukraine. And when she took over, I think a lot of people like me were like, "Oh shit, what what is she going to do here?" She's been great with the Ukraine stuff, and I guess not great with everything else. And mm -hmm. that's now, I guess, sort of this template that's happening in, in Italy and elsewhere. So talk a little bit about that. What are you seeing? Yeah, that's um, it, it is a template. Um, Maloney is playing a double game, as are some of these other people. She's she's the most clear example because she is a hardcore neo-fascist. She yeah. still to this day will not take the flame 
out of the logo of her party. The flame stands for the original neo-fascist party that was founded to honor Mussolini right after he died. She okay. That's her lineage. And the people around her, we pay attention to her because she is the prime minister. But her number two, uh, who's the president of the Senate of Italy, is an unreconstructed fascist who talks about being the heir. We're all, he says, we're all heirs of the Duce. He supports uh, the Italian soldiers who fought with the Nazis in World War II. There's just no doubt about his leanings. And most of the party, uh, like her cabinet and the people in it, in leadership positions, I tracked this when I wrote uh, a few pieces about her. Almost all of them come out of neo-fascism. They were, they were militant. They weren't just members. They were militants in the party for many, many years. And you could say, okay, people can change. But the things she's doing domestically are in line with what fascism looks like today. You know, extreme homophobia. Uh, and, and her party's been governing already at the, at the local level. And they've tried to roll back abortion rights. They've been, you know, anti-LGBTQ. She believes that Italy is white and Christian and straight. And that's the identity to be defended. She's also such a, a, an extreme conspiracy theorist about migration. She's to the right of Tucker Carlson. And she, for many years, is on record saying that it's not just that um, non-whites are having more babies. So that's a version of Great Replacement where you're lamenting an objective demographic trend. She thinks there's a plot by George Soros, NATO, I mean, this is like until two years ago, she's tweeting this all the time and, and saying it all the time. So there's a plot by, by the usual suspects to flood Italy with non-white people and, and make Italians extinct. This is how extreme she is. So, of course, she, everyone's so relieved that she is uh, taking this pro-democracy stand with Ukraine. And she's you know, many people, uh, when she uh, came into power and won, there were people in Italy and abroad. It was like, she's not going to last. Um, Yasha Monk wrote something for The Atlantic. We both wrote, and he was he thought she wouldn't last very long. She's just going to come and go. And I was like, no, she's not going to come and go. She <laughs> She's going to probably stay there for a long time. Indeed, she's revealed herself to be extremely skilled. So, She's no fool. She Italy depends on EU money. She knows it's very important to get credentials because she's a neo-fascist and to get credentials with Biden and all the other people who matter because she knows that her mentor Berlusconi actually was forced to resign, not by the Italians. This is during the Eurozone crisis uh, in 2011-12. It was Angela Merkel and and the Europeans who forced him to resign. She knows all this. He was her mentor. So she is talking, the, she says what people want to hear, and maybe she believes it. She loved Putin until a few years ago, but that doesn't matter. She's a politician. Yeah. So the problem is she's being a good ally. Great. That's really important for Ukraine. That's the most important thing. So it's like, is it a marriage of convenience that she's just going to get credit and be able to normalize everything she's doing at home? I think so. 
So that's the problem. And there is the same dynamic in Poland. She's particularly charming uh, and and a novelty. So that's why she's the best example. Yeah. But, so it's not good news for Italian democracy the more she is lionized uh, abroad, let's say. Yeah. It's such a hard needle to thread for Biden to have to deal with these people because, you know, he needs, and, and Zelensky for that matter, you know, they need, you know, their support in the endeavor that we're doing. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, it's pretty ridiculous, by the way, that the, the homophobia makes no sense in the context of Italian history. Like, you know, read about the Roman em- emperors, you know, Antonius yeah, it, it's, it's come on. But Mussolini, but it makes sense. Uh, Mussolini sent them to concentration camp, uh, yeah. and I wrote about it in, in Strongman. Um, so it makes sense in that way. Yeah. Um, and also the Catholic Church is there. And right. and just because the current Pope has said much more welcoming things sometimes doesn't mean that the church as a whole isn't like you know, part of the problem. Um, so it, it, it is it is a, a, a difficult thing. Um, and, you know, the, a good example, she's welcomed many uh, Ukrainian refugees into Italy. But at the same time, because uh, they're white and Christian. Right. And and this has happened with Orban, too. But she has souped up to an extremely authoritarian degree uh, what's happening to non-white Christian migrants. Yeah. Um, so... That's she, kind of it's like she's example. using it as a shield to do what she really wants to do. That's yes. Crazy. And she's and she's uh, in that way. She reminds me of Mussolini, who was also received as um, by uh, Western powers uh, up, to, up until he allied with Hitler. He was like the big uh, peacemaker and moderate. And even when Hitler came, he was going to be the moderate fascist who could bring everybody together. Um, I should probably do an op-ed about that because it was a really big deal. Yeah. He was he was seen as uh, the force for balance, believe it or not. At the same time, he he was like had a full-on dictatorship. Yeah, you know, people. I don't know. I think if people aren't in the country, and then especially and back then too, it's you're really relying on reporting from a very small group of people to some degree, yeah. and. Um, you know, we've seen it in in, in the Soviet Union in the, in the 30s, all the, um, you know, the American communists, uh, party people who I think, you know, as I understand it at that time, they just wanted like cooperation and more shared resources and thought that that's what was happening in, in the Soviet Union. Of course, it was not. Um, this all came out because I saw Oppenheimer last weekend, but, you know, it's, it's for, foremost in my mind. Now, the other fascist uh, epicenter in Europe there is Spain, where, as you wrote, um, the Vox Party, which is the the sort of neo-fascist party there, it was sort of thought for a couple of days they were going to um, take over the parliament and and they did not. So what what happened there? Why was that different? And does it mean anything in the larger scheme of things, do you think? So. Vox uh, has been, um, Vox did really well in the regional and local elections a few years ago. And what they do, there's there's two main, uh, two huge parties in Italy, uh, sorry, in Spain. One is the, the Popular Party or People's Party, which originally was founded by people connected to Franco. And it's uh, a conservative center-right party. And then there's the Socialist 
uh, party and Pedro Sanchez is the um, the you know the head of that right the, the prime minister and so Spain has always been polarized and then there are uh, these like you know separatist regional parties and, and other parties so Vox was the new um, entry into this and it's not a very old party it's a new party and it reflects this kind of populist far right you know direction and one thing that's interesting I talked to a Spanish journalist uh, for you know research and he's quoted in my piece, um, what Vox did as an actual uh, governor, let's say governing party in the places it it governed in the last years after they won in the regional and local elections was so extreme that it turned people off. Um, their public health stances, you know, their, their kind of full-on embrace of conspiracy theories, the virulent, uh, you know, anti-gay, positions, um, the kind of threatening stuff they do, all of the checklists that we know. And so people got a taste of what could happen nationally. And that made uh, that fueled uh, a voting, you know, turnout sufficient to. So Vox actually lost 19 seats in parliament. That's a huge. So so it's a temporary reprieve. Uh, It's a reprieve, let's say. Um, And it's like in many places it's like the it's like also with le pen in france every time there's an election now in her case she does better and so in this case they were turned back but a lot of their precepts have become normalized by the big center right party and this happened in italy with berlusconi he he allied with the neo fascists and in the process over time because these things take some time the neo-fascists got way more power and Maloney would never be there if that process hadn't been introduced earlier. So we don't know what will happen in Spain. And the Socialist Party needs to be a lot stronger on some of it. It needs to have a a, a retreat and reassess some of its platforms and methods like many center-left parties because they're not reaching uh, some of the, they're not reaching some of the young people who are instead going over to Vox. Yeah. That seems to be generally a pattern in Europe where we have these there there appear to be a shortage of good leaders on the center left. Certainly in Britain, it's like they can't they have to have a yeah. prime minister, but it has to be somebody associated with Brexit and also somebody competent. And there's only like four people that, you know, in Terrible. that Venn diagram. So it's you know, that whole thing is a shit show. Uh, I guess it's more stable now. Um, but, you know, for a while it was like, what's what's going on there? This guy. Boris is is worse than Trump in some ways. I mean, he's terrible. So, um, you know, and it seems like w- w- where there's um, leaders that have been there for too long. I don't know. Like, I feel like with Trudeau in Canada, he's also he's been there a long time. And mm-hmm. people are probably if in the United States, he would have termed out and then we'd have another election and there be we would have to have new people by now. Um, the parliamentary system doesn't have that option. So, you know, it, and it doesn't allow for the direct voting there there's there's advantages to parliament system but in the united states when we decide that somebody's not the president they're not the president so you know somebody like netanyahu wouldn't be able to like scurry back through the you know the back channels of this party is going to you know ally with this weird party and then suddenly he's going to be there again that that sort of thing can't happen um we can only take over in the united states by um gaming the electoral college and helping you know with russians and jim comey and stuff so yeah, yeah. We, we have our own stuff but well um, just, just on the electoral college 
I had never paid too much attention to it, not being a historian of America, et cetera. But <laughs> even before when even before what happened in January 6th, I started to think of, of course, I was thinking of all the weaknesses in our system. Our system was built not thinking of somebody. Well, in some ways, yes, it was anti-tyrant. But anytime you you entrust enormous power to just a few people, if you think like a strong man, which I do, those people are going to be really vulnerable uh, because it's if you if you can just ha- have something happen to or control those few people and decide an election in an enormous country like America, that institution needs to be reformed to yeah. protect democracy. It's just way it doesn't work with people. It worked as long as there was nobody like Trump around and that's where Mike Pence, as awful as he is on absolutely everything else, he couldn't make that leap and he just didn't want to do that. Um, but nobody else has had a problem with it and the entire GOP has no remorse whatsoever. So the Electoral College doesn't work anymore. It's it's a huge liability now to our democracy. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And you know, the leaders that have been elected that have lost the popular vote, you've got Bush in 2000, you know, losing the popular vote, Trump in, in, these are, these are bad things that happen. I mean, Bush, you know, uh, W. Bush, between the, the horrible wars of terror that were spent a trillion dollars in counting and the tax cuts, which are another trillion dollars. I mean, that's, you know, financially crippling the country in ways that we may, we may not, you know, ever recover from. So, um, and then Trump is even worse. So, and these are people that we didn't elect. You know, we didn't want them. And then, how many Supreme Court justices did they get to put on the? Yeah, you that's know? another institution. Yeah. There's so only getting, nine. Yeah, we're getting a huge lesson uh, in how anti-democratic our democracy actually is, in a way. Yeah. yeah. Well put. Okay, I want to end on on this question. So I was writing something this morning about uh, science fiction and I was reading, I have a copy of 1984 um, that came out 20 years ago and Thomas Pynchon, the great novelist, wrote the foreword to it, which I remembered as being kind of cool because I like him and just what he thought of the book and everything. And I came across this again, this is 20 years ago he wrote this, um, talking about uh, it just the book and whether Orwell was right or wrong or this or that and how that kind of doesn't matter. He says, um, specific predictions are only details after all. What is perhaps more important, indeed necessary to a working prophet, prophet, P-H-E-T, is to be able to see deeper than most of us into the human soul. Orwell in 1948 understood that despite the Axis defeat, the will to fascism had not gone away that far from having seen it its day, it had perhaps not yet even come into its own. The corruption of spirit, the irreversible human addiction to power were already long in place, all well-known aspects of the Third Reich and Stalin's USSR, even the British Labor Party, like first drafts of a terrible future. What could prevent the same thing from happening to Britain and the United States? Moral superiority, good intentions, clean living? So, uh, and That's you know- great. There's pinch on when he wrote that is much more relevant 20 years later than it was when he wrote that. So he's a bit of a prophet himself, perhaps. But uh, my question to you 
is um, how are you feeling now about it? Are you more optimistic than you were when you wrote your book or less? Or what's your takeaway now? Um, I'm feeling pretty optimistic, actually. The danger is very high. Um, there, I'm very concerned about rising political violence. There's many things I'm concerned about, obviously, the cult leader thing. But I see a lot of uh, resistance going on in different forms in our country that I wish it was covered more. I wish there were, you know, A1 stories about uh, treating all these things that are going on as something uh, extraordinary. So it's helpful to know that in the world, globally, we are in the middle of a, a renaissance of nonviolent protest. And there are places that are having mass demonstrations that either never have them, like, uh, you know, Iran, uh, China, the China's like, they don't want you to think about the Chinese protests, but um, 79 universities had protests. Um, so it's this global thing. And we are ripe for another round of that. Uh, the Women's March was the largest uh, march ever in US history. We never talk about it anymore. Surpassed only by Black Lives Matter. Up to 20 million Americans participated. And it was multiracial, multigenerational. So what's going on now that's very interesting is there's, you know, all kinds of pushback. There's people doing legal things like Mark Elias. There's, uh, but there are new, it's at the, it's at the state level, which is appropriate because now, you know, after Trump left, uh, the things, the hot spots are in the states, as we've discussed with, you know, Texas and Florida. So what I'm seeing is in Tennessee, for example, um, where, you know, or in Ohio, uh, there are these new alliances coming out of grassroots activists and state lawmakers. And and also a new sensitization, you know, when uh, the Justins, as they're known, were expelled and one of them made a Black Power salute on the yeah. floor of that. That's very important because we have these traditions that uh, like civil rights traditions, other traditions that need to be uh, activated that are being activated. I also thought it was very interesting. There was a photograph of uh, when in Florida, Nikki Freed, the chair of the Dem Florida Democrats, and I think Lauren Bird is her name. She's like one of the top people uh, in the House State House of Representatives. They were arrested and the photograph showed them being arrested while they were linking arms with grassroots activists. So these kinds of alliances are very interesting to me. So I'm um, my next book will be about anti-authoritarian strategy in part. So I think that uh, what we've been going through, I talked about several times in this conversation about the lessons we're learning, and in particular, young people who there's lots of studies now coming out that they're way more progressive. They, they feel existentially threatened by guns, by the climate. And so I think we're ripe for um, a whole other round of uh, multi-form protests. So I'm up, I'm really optimistic about that. Yeah, I am too. I think Biden's going to win in a landslide. And, um, you know, what happens after that, who knows? But I, and I think it's yeah. going to, Trump lost the last three elections, right? Pretty resoundingly. So I think he's, I think people don't like him. I think most people don't like him. I think he's got his cult, but I think that, you know, it's just a matter of getting people who don't like him to the polls at the end of the day. That's, you know, in such numbers that they can't fuck with it in the Electoral College, I suppose. That's where we're at. So 
Yeah, my uh, never underestimate somebody like Trump, but my uh, other slogan is never underestimate the American people. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. I, I forgot to bring this up. My friend Asia Raiden um, was on the show, was talking about the fascist thing and fascism coming to America. And she was like, eh, at the end of the day, all these people, these like rugged outdoorsy people that, who are now MAGA, they're not going to want to be told what to do. You know, it's in our ethos as a country not to, you know, to resist that kind of shit. So, um, you know, I don't know. I feel like she's right to some degree. Um, you know, a lot of these people would chafe at being under a real legitimate fascist regime, which, you know, we've never really had here. Yeah, I don't think it would be like that, though, because that's people who live in Hungary don't unless they are critics, they don't feel that they're living with um, such restraints. Mm. And so. Um, and the way that cult dynamics work is that, yeah, all these anti-government people, you think, well, why are they going for Trump and worshiping him? Because that's the cult dynamic. Um, they are all for, you know, freedom to ba- to bash heads and steal and rape. But when your leader is embodying that, then you can have your you can be subjected to him very happily. That's fascism. Yeah. So it could go either way. I'm not totally disputing her point but it is it is a conundrum <laughs> and we yeah. could hope that she's i hope she's right <laughs> so, so don't we all don't we all um you know some of these anti-woke people are are they just want the entire system to blow up yeah and and they think that you know trump offers the the best way forward to do that um yeah you know a lot of them read that the unabomber manifesto do you know have you heard about this have you read right. it it's Partly. it's kind of, it's kind of fascinating in certain parts, but the, the, uh, you know, this idea that the French revolution, you know, any revolution does one of two things. You want to install the new system, but you also want to destroy the old one. And most of the time they don't install the new system, but they do destroy the old one. And that's what a lot of these people are, I think, you know, for like the Steve Bannon, we're going to destroy the administrative state and, Mm -hmm. and, and on and on. So I don't know, but the forces are, are there against us, but I do think that, uh, I don't know. There's enough people here who care enough. And now, you know, because of the Supreme Court overreach in some cases, people's lives are so directly affected by what's happening, because usually that isn't the case. You know, we talk about the politicians, but people's lives are not directly affected. This the the, the anti-abortion stuff directly affects a lot of people and the anti LGBT, a lot of people, a lot of families, you know, many, many families. So, you know, it's impossible to ignore that. And if you're a young person and naturally more tolerant of, of that stuff anyway, um, of course you're going to be more aware. So I don't know. I share your optimism, Ruth. I do. Um, Okay. So right before we go, you mentioned this new book you're working on. How far away is this from happening or or, no, we can't order it on Amazon. Can't really. Yeah. It's just, just it's, working on it. It's still in yeah. your print. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm excited for it when it comes out. So um, again, your your book, which is now in paperback with the the new afterword about uh, J6 called Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Um, please subscribe to Lucid, which is your sub stack. And it's, it's, it's both really good and very uh, professionally done. Like you really feel like it's a, it, it, you know, it's a well-run outfit. I have to say it's always, oh, thank you. Uh, I think it's, it's a- you did a really, you do a really good job with it. And I, I'm a big fan of it. So um, anybody listening who has not seen that, please go check it out. Uh, Ruth ben Gia, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure. Veil theme song is by Matthew Fossa. 
Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time, we shall prevail. MSW Media. The issues of the day are really complicated. Everybody loves a good hot take, but really understanding an issue takes some digging. I'm Asha Rangaba. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Join us each week as we dig deep into pressing legal topics. Listen to It's Complicated anywhere you get your podcasts and check out our YouTube channel.